0: Yeah, I used to work in the 90s in a a bookshop in Trades Hall in Melbourne, where we used to do a lot of secondhand books, and they were usually donated by old trade unionists. Um, And when I was working there, it was part of my job to pick up and assess these books, and we would get these books about Paul Robeson again and again and again, and at the time, I had a vague knowledge of Robeson. I knew that he was a guy with his deep voice. I knew he'd been in movies and stuff, but I had very little sense of his political um, career, nor any real sense of the depth of his talents. I mean, the way it was described to me when I started researching Robeson, I I met an African-American historian who said to me, look, if you want to think about what Paul Robeson meant in the 1940s, you have to imagine that there is not only this guy with this beautiful voice, there is not only this guy who is a major Hollywood superstar, It's not only a guy who's an acclaimed stage actor who's reinterpreting Shakespearean drama, not only someone with a law degree from Princeton University, it's not only someone who's been the greatest football player of his era, has also been a professional basketball player at Harlem, um, a linguist who could make himself heard, um, understood in twenty-three different languages, but also one of the um, greatest political activists of his day—a man at the time of a stature comparable to Martin Luther King or Malcolm X—and this would be this one person who had embodied all of these different aspects in that in his career. I mean, described at one stage as the most talented man of the 20th century, and I think that's not hyperbole. Well, when I became more aware of all of this, I became really curious as to why I didn't know about this guy, why it was that he was someone who had been at one stage, the most famous American in the world. Why was it now that he was this obscure figure who didn't mean very much to people under the age of 40? And that was kind of part of the story that I wanted to tell what had happened to this man Um, why his story had become obscure and what that obscurity told us about the significance of the story. So that was the impetus for the book, I guess.
1: He emerges at a very crucial time in African-American history. He's not only the son of a slave, which is extraordinary in itself, and perhaps speak to that, but also he becomes a figure in the Harlem Renaissance and he's one of the first uh, true giants in terms of African-American celebrity, an actor, a singer as well. Tell us about his arguably a unique place in African-American history in the early 20th century.
0: Yes, so I was really struck by that when I was researching the book, the remarkable recency of slavery. So Robeson dies in 1976. Now, I was alive in 1976, um, and that means that I was alive at the same time as someone whose father was a slave, which really makes you think, gosh, this wasn't... Something that happened in far off ancient days. This was, you know, this was a modern event. This was part of modernity, and it it, it puts in context the incredible trauma of African American uh, history through the twentieth um, century. I mean, W. B. Du Bois, a great um, American scholar and um, activist, said at one point that the, the african-american emerged from slavery had a few moments in the sun and then was pushed back into the darkness once again that's very much uh the story of robeson's life his father had been a slave escaped from slavery but by the 1890s when robeson was born there's this incredible wave of violence that is sort of pushing back against the rights that african-americans have won so you know when 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 um Paul Robeson won a, a scholarship to Rutgers in 1916. I mean, that was the that was the era in which um Woodrow Wilson was was introducing Jim Crow legislation all across America, um essentially a form of apartheid, you know, where there were strictures on absolutely everything an African American person could do, from where they could live to the kind of job they can do, they could do from their ability to To to, to vote. And that was the context in which um, Robeson kind of forged his extraordinary career in a situation where most um, professional options, most professional. Um, careers simply weren't open to an African-American man. He still managed to turn himself into a superstar. was another reason why it's such an extraordinary
1: story. The tallest tree in our forest is a famous description of Paul Robeson by the civil rights activist and educator Mary Bethany. Robeson remains to this day a much-celebrated, indeed, lionised figure in African-American history, and rightfully so. Yet that wasn't always the case during his own lifetime, especially in the early part of his singing and acting career, there were times when Robeson was embraced more by white theatre critics and audiences than their African-American counterparts. Explain to us why that was. Yeah, so Robeson was um,
0: very much a part of the Harlem Renaissance, as as you mentioned, um, a movement that began in the 1920s. And he, he found his way onto stage essentially because other options weren't open to him. He actually trained to be a lawyer... And he realised that there was no future for an African-American way. He'd always been able to sing. Um, and he sort of stumbled into showbiz. He, he was, because he was such a superb athlete, he had this tremendous physical kind of presence. And so even before he really knew how to act, just by being on a stage, he was this sort of magnetic figure. But particularly in his theatre career, the problem you have is if, if you're an African-American actor in that age is that The theatre is controlled by white America, and even um, the plays that are being written by relatively progressive dramaturgs often don't have roles for a man of Robeson's talent. So again and again, he would be cast in these roles as a kind of sidekick or as a sort of stock figure. And he would have to grapple with the question, well, what do you do? Do you refuse to take these roles, which is what he he did later on in his career, or do you take them because they're the only ones you're going to be offered and try to make something of them? And um, certainly in his early career, that was something he did again and again. He'd be given this sort of minor, often belittling role in plays that were sometimes either explicitly or implicitly racist, and he would have to try to... Infuse it with some dignity by his own talents and um, and skills. I mean, he, he, even Showboat, which is the uh, which was really sort of uh, the musical in which he became um, a megastar. and gave us the song Old Man River, with which, which he is now indelibly associ- associated. His role in that is fairly minor. The original version of the song um, he used the N word and was quite belittling, and so. You know, um, even as he became a success with it, there were people within the African-American community saying why ropes and lending his talents to a play like that. And in many ways, I think it's it's kind of a, an ongoing issue that um, anyone who's a progressive in the arts has to kind of grapple with the degree to which you compromise in order to get an audience and, you know, the degree to which you refuse to bend but then run the risk of... Um, not having anyone um, who, who will um, listen to your work. And that was a, a problem that Robeson struggled with all through his life.
1: In your book, you identify a chance 1929 encounter Robeson had with a group of protesting Welsh miners in London that arguably changed the course of his life, setting him on a path of political radicalism. It seems odd at first blush that the son of an African-American slave would develop such a close bond with Welsh miners and their community, yet that's precisely what happened over the course of the next few decades.
0: Yeah, I mean, Robson had been moving um, to the left. Um, I mean, being African American in the time and the place he was, he always had a certain kind of politics in the. And the um, Harlem Renaissance was, of course, tremendously political. But his relationship, sort of, to the to the labor tradition was something that very much began when he was in England, and. The, his closeness with Wales and, in particular, the Welsh miners was partly a reflection of his general identification with the Labor Movement and simply the fact that he was a very working class, very well-organised section of the, uh, the Labor Movement. But also, he also again and again drew a parallel between um, the mining towns in Wales and the the community in which he grew up. He said, here are these small communities of oppressed people who are finding solace in both religion and in music. Um, Robeson's father was a minister. the, uh, The musical tradition was very important to the black church. Likewise in Wales, where the chapels were a fundamental part of mining communities, and the choir... That sort of Welsh choral tradition was a big part of working class life, and um, in one of Robson's better films, the the Proud Valley, it's actually based on that conceit. He plays a um, he he plays a, a seafarer who comes to Cardiff and ends up in the Rhondda Valley where he's heard to be singing, and the miners, you know, recognise his beautiful voice. And there's this sort of bond of solidarity that's forged between them on the basis that they have common enemies in the mine owners and the employers. And so that, that was an argument that Robeson made again and again. I should say that when I traveled to, to Wales for the book, because the book is both a narrative about Robeson, but also a narrative of my experiences following in his footsteps, the affection for Robeson in Wales is still incredibly um, strong everywhere you go people will tell you about what Robeson meant and tell you about the time that he came to this town or, or that town or the various benefits that he put on for the for the miners. So yes, it's his extraordinarily bond between Robeson and those mining communities.
1: There is so much more to cover, Jeff. We really have only scratched the surface of this remarkable man's life. But I wanted to end with Paul's political legacy. One of the most striking and, in my view, effective aspects of your book, which you just mentioned, is the way you weave from the contemporary to the historical, the manner in which you relate Robeson's personal and political struggles to the urgent social questions facing us today. Why is Robeson still relevant in 2018? And what do you think is his political legacy?
0: Yeah, I I mean, it 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 might seem obscure, as you said. Why should we care about this? You know, the legacy of this person from who was most popular in the 1940s. But of course, if you think about the issues that Robeson grappled with, the tremendous legacy of slavery and oppression in the United States, and the ongoing racism in that country, um, Robeson's struggle against the rise of the far right his um, response to the economic turmoil of the 1930s, his attempts to fuse art and politics, all of those questions are very much questions of our time that we're still grappling with today. Not in quite the same way, of course, and you can't simply rewind back the film of history. But, you know, everyone knows the far right is on the rise. Everyone knows that racism is still very much with us. Everyone knows that, you know, art is important and everyone wonders about how it can be made to, um, you know, serve the cause of um, progressive ideas. And the question of economic turmoil and instability, I think is something that will be, you know, with us for the sort of for the foreseeable future. So in the book, I don't suggest that we can simply read off answers from Robson's life, but he certainly poses questions with which we need to grapple today.